This is Your Working Life, a podcast that provides you with tools, inspiration, and resources so you can enjoy your career and love your life. I'm Caroline Dowd Higgins. I'm a speaker and an executive coach, and today I am delighted to welcome Jenna Fisher to the show. Jenna identifies the roadblocks that stop women from reaching higher levels of career success while emphasizing the need for a fundamental shift in how organizations understand leadership. And I am thrilled to dive into a juicy conversation with her. Jenna, welcome to the show. Caroline, thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Oh my gosh, I got your book a few weeks ago and I am just jazzed to dive into a conversation with you. It's so important, but I want to set the stage for our global audience because at the current pace of change, and this is right out of your book, it will take women 132 years to reach economic parity with men. And I think you and I are both in agreement that this is unacceptable. So let's start the conversation there. And I want to ask you, How has the recent shift in the workforce caused by the pandemic and so many other things that are happening globally impacted women and their career trajectory? Absolutely. Well, you know, I think at first, of course, the pandemic in the early days had a a very clear detrimental impact on women's careers as so many moms had managed their children's online school and a lot of the help that families typically had were unable to come to conduct their jobs as normal. But I do think that as time went on throughout the pandemic, once kids were back in school, this new normal of remote working has been found that it can actually be a huge lift for women. Many of the knowledge workers of the world, we've proven that we can do our jobs just as well, if not better, frankly, remotely than by commuting to an office. And that has given women in particular, I think a real boost to their ability to be both the employees, as well as the parents and family and community members that they want to be. I agree. And I'm, I'm grateful that you mentioned knowledge workers because we have proven over a case study during the pandemic out of necessity that it works. Uh, I'm still hearing from a lot of organizations, though, pushback and wanting their people to come back to work and in the office. And any thoughts about that from your research in the book? Absolutely. We talk about this a lot in my book. And look, I think there are definitely times when it is imperative to look somebody else in the eye and to have that real visceral in-person experience. But I would argue that just as none of us, I don't think, would attempt to scrub laundry by hand and hang it outside to line dry after the washer dryer had been invented, we also should be leveraging technology in the same way to empower our workers today. And the system that we have of driving to an office and sitting in our little cubicle or office is really a vestige from the industrial era 100 years ago that was modeled after the assembly line and created at a time when managers needed to physically see their teams to ensure that work was being done and team members didn't have the myriad means of communicating and collaborating electronically that we do today. And so I think we really need to set our managers and teams up to be able to manage in this remote way where we can measure the inputs and not measure the outputs and not the inputs. It used to be, yeah, yeah, I mean, it used to be that if we saw somebody getting into the office at 7 a.m. and leaving at 10 p.m., we'd say, oh, that that Bob, he's a killer. He's just crushing it. And, And now, you know, who knows if Bob was actually doing anything other than surfing the internet. But now we can look at somebody's technology footprint to see what they're contributing and what value they're adding. 
And, and sure, there are new skills to be learned and muscles to be flexed and managing remotely. But what an amazing opportunity, I think, for parents in particular to be able to be more physically available to their children when they need them. And so I think that we really need to to incorporate more of this into our companies. Well, and what I loved about the book is you talk about how women really need to seize the moment and capitalize on this new way of working and self-advocate. Any examples that you might give? Because I think before the pandemic, so many women and men were fearful about that. It was a special circumstance to work remotely. It wasn't the norm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No, you're, you're absolutely I mean, I remember you know, people wanting to work remotely one day a week on Fridays because the commute in the Bay Area where I live is is so onerous. And that was a huge thing to get people to agree to that. And, and we really have seen a seismic shift during the pandemic where I think we have a real dearth of great talent out there. And I think the balance of power has shifted from that, from the employer to the employee. And I think that companies who get that and who try to empower workers and in particular millennials who are i think more broadly scoped and thinking about how they, how they want to solve the multiple and sim- simultaneous equations that they have in their personal and professional lives i think those will be the companies that will be successful you know something that that i learned in your book you point out that the first disparity between male and female employees begins at the manager level. So what's causing this early disparity and and how can we reverse that trend or impact change? Yeah, it's a great question, Caroline. So one of the things I learned in my research that for heterosexual couples, even starting before the management level, women are on average two and a half years younger than men when they get married. And so it stands to reason perhaps that when the couple fast forward a few years has children, the couple looks at their income at that point in time, and there's a good chance because of age alone that the man is making more money at that moment in time because he could arguably have twice the experience than the woman does. However, that speaks nothing to potentiality. And so we really need to think about careers in long range terms and support women developing theirs before they get snuffed out too soon. And I think as it pertains to the manager level, that is the same age often that women are trying to get pregnant, stay pregnant, bear children, breastfeeding, all of these biological imperatives. Of course, some people don't want to have children, but many do. And one of the, another thing that I learned by interviewing these 50 amazing global women leaders from my book is that what we've all viewed as a successful career arc has been designed by men for men. Caroline, did you know that even the temperature we keep, keep offices at was predicated on the temperatures that men most enjoy. Yes, <laughs> and so, yes. <laughs> it's crazy, right? And so, especially for women who want children, um, because that's actually the moment we see men and women's earnings actually start to change. Before children, they're actually on par with each other, and so it's at that moment where I would argue women should not be always feeling. The need, and men too, for that matter, this need to climb this assiduous ladder. And so what I talk a lot about in my book is let's create career webs. Let's have companies do that where it's not the 26.2 mile sprint every single day, every single year, every single decade of one's career. Of course, there are going to be times when that is the case and that's what you have to do and should do. But equally, there could be other times maybe where you're reaping the rewards of having sown and done really good work so that 
we give people a little bit of grace. Maybe it, it takes a year or two longer for somebody to get to the next promotion cycle because they are helping raise children at home or they are helping elderly parents. I think there are a lot of men who would like to be more present parents and actually get to take paternity leave. Um, and so I think we really need to create the space for men and women to lead full lives while also contributing meaningfully at work. This is such important work. And I want to just recap a couple of things that you said for this global audience, because I wanted it to stick, stick, stick. The mom penalty, right? What you described, how often women are are not promoted for their potential, where our wonderful male counterparts have been promoted for potential or even hired for potential for generations. So let's pull back a little bit. I love the term career webs. What can organizations do, and I'm thinking the structure and company culture, in impacting the career progression of women more positively, in a more supportive way, to allow for the fact that our career trajectory is different than a man's? Absolutely. And I can tell you, Caroline, that as a recruiter, if you would ask me even two years ago, if you had said, hey, here's the resume of a 50-year-old VP and I would look at it and I would have said, hmm, you know, they're not in the C-suite yet. Maybe maybe they're never going to get there. But now I think that that was such a misguided sentiment. And I know I was not alone in that bias. Maybe there were reasons why that person wasn't running the, the marathon sprint every day of their careers. Maybe they're going to break into the C-suite at age 55 when their kids are off in college and they're more free to travel for work, for example. I interviewed in my book several women around the globe who didn't even work outside the home at all until their 40s. And now they're hitting their professional strides in their 60s or even 70s. And so I just think, you know what, we're all hopefully living longer. And so let's take that into consideration. The other thing that I think is really important for managers to be mindful of is that I've seen this again in interviewing well over a thousand executive women over the 20 years I've been here at Russell Reynolds. And I can tell you that women are much more loath to go for the promotion, to go for the next level. And I think it is incumbent upon managers to really encourage women to apply for those promotions, to go to them and to say, you know what, we've spoken to many people here in the organization and we believe you are ready. As Amy Bunzel, who's the head of technology at Autodesk said to me when I interviewed her for my book, position specifications are wish lists. No one is perfect. No one is the purple unicorn. And I really think we need to keep that in mind and take some, some concerted risks to get more women to the top. Jenna, in the spirit of Wishlist, we'll be right back after a quick break. I'd like to tell you about a special offer. If you want to bring your podcast to life or up your podcast game, you can get up to two months of free podcasting service with Libsyn using my special code, CDHWORK. The Libsyn team will get your podcast on Apple and Spotify and give you access to critical stats and all the support you need to sound your best and grow your show. Use my special code, CDHWORK. the right speaker for your event is a tremendous responsibility. You need a speaker who will work within your budget and engage your audience. Whether you're looking to retain or grow top talent, create a healthy workplace culture, or prevent burnout in your organization, I can create customized content to help you recharge, reignite, or reinvent your career. 
let's talk about how I can help you achieve your special event goals. Connect with me at carolinedowdhiggins.com. Jenna, I love the beginning of your book. You talk about the demand for C-suite leadership and this shift in how women bring compassion, empathy, sensitivity, and integrity to build strong teams. So how has leadership evolved and what is what does it look like to be a modern day leader at that level? Absolutely, Caroline. You know, it used to be thought that being and possessing the more traditionally quote unquote male forms of leadership being disruptive, risk-taking, heroic, galvanizing, those were the marks of a great leader, in addition to maybe being six foot three and having you know salt and pepper hair. Uh, but, now, but now we've come to learn through our exclusive partnership here at Russell Reynolds with Hogan, which is generally considered to be the preeminent assessment tool, is that it's actually the leaders that can flex and be both disruptive, yes, at times that's very important, but also pragmatic. Be risk-taking, but also reluctant. Be heroic, but also vulnerable. And galvanizing, but also connecting. And I think those are going to be the leaders who can win the day. And we saw this in droves with COVID, with a real need to lead with that connectedness, that empathy, that kindness, that vulnerability. And these are areas that we really saw women shine as leaders. And that was what led me to write this book at the moment I did, because I thought this is the moment for women to take hold. And one of the one of the many amazing women that I interviewed for my book was Dame Vivian Hunt, who formerly was the vice chair of McKinsey, the leading global consulting firm. She's now the chief innovation officer at United Healthcare. And one of the things she shared with me in our interview is that she had earlier in her career, a preconceived notion of how she was supposed to show up how she was supposed to look and what she was supposed to say and do. And she didn't let her full authentic self come through. But as she got a bit more senior and she realized through 360 feedback that people really wanted to know her as a real person, she gathered the confidence finally to let down her mask and to let her full personality shine through. And that is when her career really took off. And I think people people don't want to work for a robot. They want to work for a real human who can empathize with what they might be going through. And I think women are so great at exhibiting that that trait. Jenna, I'm so glad you mentioned that beautiful story because I think vulnerability is a newish trait of successful leaders that we were as a as a women were afraid to expose that vulnerability. It it made us feel perhaps unsafe or not as strong. But now the research and, and even the, the anecdotal offerings are saying people want to be led by leaders who are authentic. Absolutely. I mean, I think so many women are working so hard to solve the simultaneous equations of work and family. And we define ourselves in so many different ways. Yes, we can be an executive, sure. But we're also a mother, a sister, a wife, a daughter, a community member, a homemaker, a volunteer. and I think that this new way of working that we have found reduces the friction that many women have felt in the past about being unavailable to their families and and not being able to be their authentic full selves. This does not mean that women are not working just as hard, if not harder, frankly, because previously we weren't seeing the woman who got back online at 730 and worked until 1030 at night after she put her kids to bed. 
But now what we base, we can base our managerial decisions on data and looking at somebody's technology footprint and their work output. And the picture will become clearer and people can be more of their authentic selves. So I want to ask you to put your executive recruiter hat on for a moment. And a question that I'm seeing uh, really stick in in the interview uh, sphere, especially for leaders, is tell us about a professional failure. And it's not about the failure as much as about the recovery story and how the individual was resilient and, and came back from an adverse situation. Do you recommend that when, when you're thinking about um, executive placement opportunities? Absolutely. I mean, I, one of my favorite quotes is, you miss 100% of the shots you never take. And when you take a lot of shots, yeah. Of course, you're not going to have a perfect record, but the more shots you take, the better you get. And I mean, I know personally, I've always been a planner. Um, I, starting at the age of four, when I could start writing, I would keep lists and a diary of what I wanted to accomplish with my life. And at the ripe old age of 20, I thought I had it all figured out. I knew when I was going to go to law school, when I'd move to California, when I'd get married, buy a house, make partner in my law firm, have kids, get a dog. I mean, it was all sketched out. Um, and I thought I knew exactly how my life would unfold. And so imagine my surprise when I loved law school, but I didn't love the practice of law. And I eventually, after spending time working as a management consultant at Bain and Company, I decided to go back and get my MBA, but I never contemplated that. That was not on the list when I was younger, because I'd always thought business school was reserved for people who wanted to work as an investment banker on Wall Street. And that wasn't me. And so taking two years off of my plan, uh, made me feel like a failure, honestly, which maybe sounds silly, but I, I just felt like I wasn't achieving my goals on time. But I knew that at that point in my life in my 20s, the most important thing I could do was to set myself up for a career of professional success and happiness, even if it delayed all the other things on my list. But what I learned through that quote unquote failure is that you cannot live your life by anyone else's idea of success. Top 10 lists that exist out there in, in the universe are seldom one size fits all. And you really need to march to the beat of your own drum or walk your own walk, whatever your favorite analogy is. But that's the secret to being happy and fulfilled in life. Jenna, thanks for sharing your story. That means a lot. And it, and it helps our global listeners really have the courage to, to be vulnerable and, and focus on defining success on their terms. I appreciate that. So as, as we begin to wrap, and there's so many juicy nuggets in this book, so I, I want to help our global audience know it's hard to distill it into one, but I'm going to ask you, is there anything in particular that you would share with this global audience, many of whom are women, that they can take into their careers and put into practice? What's one thing you want to leave them with? Well, so one thing I learned in the process of writing my book is that, of course, we all know women comprise 51% of the population. We comprise more than half of college and graduate school graduates. We make up the majority of the valedictorians, and yet we comprise only 10% of CEOs. And it's not because we're not leaning in far enough that we're not more successful. But when we look at the Hogan data of men and women, we see that women have everything it takes to be successful. There are no statistically significant differences between men and women. And so I think for women out there, of course, there are always things that one can do, male or female, to better themselves and to set themselves up for success. But I believe it's really incumbent upon organizations and with people choosing which organizations they join to make sure that we have laid the right groundwork for women to be successful. Jenna Fisher, I 
am so grateful that you shared time with me and this global audience today. I learned so much from you. I love the book. Let me tell the global audience what it is and how they can buy it. It's called To the Top, How Women in Corporate Leadership Are Rewriting the Rules for Success. And of course, it's available on Amazon and all major book retailers. But I love that you also celebrate independent booksellers. So if those booksellers are in your community, I hope you will check out Jenna's awesome book there. Jenna, thank you. I appreciate you. Thank you so much, Caroline. I appreciate you. And Your Working Life is now available on all major podcast platforms. And I want to hear from you. So let me know how we're doing and what career issues you would like for us to feature on a future show. You can message me on my website, carolinedowdhiggins.com. And I want to give a special shout out to my extraordinary podcast colleagues, Laura Deck, Executive Director of Publicity and Communications, and Claire McInerney, Executive Producer. Thank you for making this show awesome for our global audience. We now have listeners in 16 countries around the world. I'm Caroline Dowd-Higgins. Thanks for listening.